Good morning. I'd like you to join me in, in your Bibles in James chapter 5. <clears throat> we think of James as a man of action. He's the guy who says, show me your faith. He's the guy who says, be doers of the word. It may surprise you to know that James was also a man of prayer. In fact, Eusebius, ancient writer, tells us that James' nickname was Camel Knees because his knees were so knobby and calloused. His knees looked like a carpet layer's knees because he spent hours and hours in prayer. I've got knobby knees, but I come by them naturally. They match my skinny legs. My legs are so skinny, just to walk on them is a step of faith. I had a fellow come up to me at a church picnic one time and said, as a loving brother, let me give you some advice. Don't wear shorts. (laughs) Well, if you're feeling pretty smug because you think you look good in shorts, let me give you a verse. Psalm 147.10 says, God does not take pleasure in the legs of a man. But you know, I think James may have been the exception. Because I believe God was pleased with his callous knees. He understood the power of effective kneeling. And in this last chapter, he's exhorting us to do the same. He says in verse 13, is anyone suffering? Pray. Is anyone cheerful? Praise. And then in verse 14, is anyone sick? And his prescription is prayer. Now this is a passage that is somewhat controversial. Not because it's hard to understand, but because it's hard to digest. And I think as we go through it, you'll see it's real easy to understand. It's quite simple. And yet I read several commentaries where the individual apparently couldn't digest what this passage says, and so he kind of did spiritual gymnastics to make the text fit his preconceived theology. Well, some people may be comfortable with that. I'm not. So my desire this morning is to simply let the passage say what it says. And it may surprise us, it may disturb us, it may excite us, it may stretch us, it may do all of those things, I hope it does. Because some of us keep God in a convenient little box and we need to let him out. Some of us need to let God be God. So let's look closely and listen carefully to James' prescription for sickness. The question he asks in verse 14, is anyone among you sick? And this word sick means to be weak, feeble, without strength. Some commentators want to say he's just talking about spiritual weakness here, not physical weakness. But let me tell you, this is the most frequently used word in the New Testament for illness. It's the word used to describe Lazarus in John 11. 
And we know what happened to him. It's the word used of Dorcas in Acts 9.37. It says she fell sick, same word, and died. It's the same word used of the man by the pool in Bethesda in John 5 who had been sick for 38 years. And he was so sick he couldn't get himself into the pool. So James has in mind a man who's sick, physically sick. And we said last week he's quite sick because in verse 14, he's to call for the elders. The implication is he cannot go to them. They are to come and to pray over him, which implies that he is bedridden. And the promise in verse 15 is the Lord will raise him up. So when James says, is anyone among you sick, he's not talking about an ingrown toenail. He's talking about someone who is seriously sick or someone who is perpetually ill. And we see his prescription for this in verses 14 to 18. I've divided it into five parts. First is the procedure. Is anyone among you sick? James says in verse 14, let him call for the elders of the church. Now I want you to notice two things right off. The responsibility begins with the sick person. He initiates the process. Sometimes we hear somebody got upset because they were in the hospital and no one visited them. Well, you got to tell us. We don't have a crystal ball. And here this individual is sick. The responsibility starts with them. They call for the elders. But secondly, I want you to notice who they call for. Not the priest. Not the pastor. Not the faith healer. They call for who? They call for the elders. Some people in some churches would not know who to call because they don't have elders. This is the principle throughout the New Testament. They had elders, plural, of the church, singular. They had plural leadership. So he is to call for these, this plurality of shepherds. And they make a house call. And then when he calls, the responsibility shifts to the elders. And James goes on to say, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil. The elders are to do two things. Number one, they're to pray over him. This is the key element. In fact, in the six verses from verse 13 to 18, James uses the word prayer seven times. The elders are to come and they are to pray. Now what do they pray for? I told you last week in verse 13 that when someone's suffering, the prayer is not take it away. Because persecution is part of the Christian life. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So when the persecution comes, don't pray for it to go away. God has a purpose. But the prayer for the sick is different. It's a prayer of deliverance. It is a prayer, Lord, take it away. You say, how do you know that? Well, look at the answer to the prayer in verse 15. It says, it will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. If the answer is healing, what must the request be? Healing. So the elders come... They don't pray for the weather. They don't pray for the missionaries. They don't pray for the government leaders. 
This is a directed, specific prayer. It's done over him. He is the subject of the prayer, and they are to ask God to heal him. Someone has suggested that in heaven there's a room filled with large and small boxes. They're all gift-wrapped, and they have your name on them. When you get to heaven, you're going to go in there and say, what are these? And you're going to be told that those are the things that God prepared for you and you never asked. James says in chapter 4 and verse 2, you do not have because you do not what? Ask. Sometimes we ask and don't get our request because we ask with a selfish motive. That's chapter 4 verse 3. You ask with the wrong motive so that you can spend it on your pleasures. So you're asking for something selfishly and God doesn't answer. Sometimes we ask, but our request is so general we never know if we get an answer. When I was a little boy, I had a memorized prayer. Part of it was, God bless the world. I don't know if that got answered or not. Can't tell. It's too general. Sometimes we ask, but our request is so small we could do it ourselves. God, please help my neighbor hear the gospel. What? Get up and go tell him. You're the answer to that prayer. See, God wants us to pray large. I love what Philip Brooks says. He says, why pray for crutches when you can pray for wings? And that's what the elders are to do here. They are to pray over the one who is sick. They are to ask specifically for a big answer. Healing. And then the second thing they're to do is anoint him with oil. You say, what's this? What's the purpose of this? Well, sometimes in the Bible, oil is used for medicinal purposes. Isaiah 1.6 describes how oil was applied to soften a raw wound. <clears throat> you remember the story Jesus told in Luke 10 of the Good Samaritan. He says he bandaged up the man's wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. Sounds like a salad dressing. That's medicine. Some have suggested here that the oil is medicine, and the elders come and apply medicine to the man. Now, I certainly believe that God uses medicine in the healing process. Luke is called in Colossians 4.14, the beloved physician. In 1 Timothy 5.23, Paul prescribed a little medicine for Timothy. He said, take a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. But I don't think that when James says the elders come and anoint him with oil, that he's talking about medicine. Because why would you need the elders to come to apply medicine? And oil was only beneficial for certain kinds of maladies. James is giving a general prescription for every kind of illness. Oil is also used in Scripture for grooming purposes. I have to think back about how that works. 
Remember in 2 Samuel 12, when David's baby boy was dying, it says David fasted and he laid on the ground in prayer by the child for seven days. And when the child died, it says David got up, washed, changed clothes, and anointed himself with oil. In Luke chapter 7 and verse 46, Jesus rebuked the Pharisee who invited him over because he says, you didn't wash my feet and you didn't anoint my head with oil. So oil in the Bible is equivalent to today to moose. Or in my day to brill cream. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 17, Jesus said, when you fast... Don't neglect your appearance. When you're fasting, don't go around disheveled so people say, what's wrong with you? And you can proudly say, I'm fasting. Jesus said, take care of your appearance and anoint your head with oil. So if James is referring to oil as a means of grooming, this is really an expression of faith. Because why would you put hairspray on a person who's sick in bed? you're anticipating that they're going to get up. But having said that, I really don't think he's talking about styling gel when he talks about the oil here. You say, well, then what is the anointing with oil? Well, I think the anointing with oil is a symbolic act that accompanies the prayer of healing. The most common name for Jesus in the New Testament is Christ. You know what Christ means? It means the anointed one. He is the one who has been anointed by the Holy Spirit, has had the Holy Spirit poured out on him without measure. And oil throughout Scripture is a symbolic picture to us of the Holy Spirit. Just as in baptism, that we witnessed this morning, the water is a picture of the grave and death. Just as when we take communion, the bread is a picture of Jesus' body, the cup, symbolic of his blood. So the anointing with oil is symbolic of the Spirit of God. In Mark chapter 6 and verse 13, Jesus sent the disciples out in pairs to minister, and it says they were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. Why did they anoint people with oil? Was it medicine? No, they were healing them. Was it grooming? Let let me fix that cow lick. I don't think so. Why were they anointing with oil? I don't know. But they were. And I suggest it was probably a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And it may have even been an aid to faith. Remember when uh, Jesus healed the blind man? And the Bible says he got down and he spit in the dirt. And he made some mud cakes. And he took those mud cakes and he put them on the man's eyes. Why did he do that? I don't know. Did it help him see? No. Mud cakes make you blind. You can't see. Put mud in your eyes. Jesus puts mud in his eyes. Why? I don't know, except this man couldn't see, and so Jesus gave him something he could feel as perhaps an aid to his faith. 
So when the elders called, they are called there to pray over this man and they are to anoint him with oil. Why? I don't know. But I would suggest it's symbolic of the Spirit of God. And I would tell you this. I don't have to understand something to obey it. I have a bottle of oil in my bottom drawer of my desk. And when someone calls for the elders to come, we take the oil, we go, and we pray over that person, and we anoint them with oil. Now, we don't believe there's any power in that oil. We don't think it matters what kind of oil you use. I happen to use extra virgin olive oil. It just sounds better. You know, you can use vegetable oil, canola oil, 20 weight, 30 weight. (laughs) See, we don't think that matters, but it does matter that we're obedient to God's Word. And God's Word says the elders are to anoint the sick individual with oil. So there's the procedure. The sick person initiates it, By calling for the elders, the elders come and pray over him, anointing him with oil. Which brings us to the second point, and that's the provisions in verses 14 and 15. These are conditions. There are two. Number one is at the end of verse 14. It says they're to pray over him and anoint him with oil, notice, in the name of the Lord. Now, that may describe the attitude the elders are to come in. That's certainly true of everything we do. Colossians 3.17 says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. But I think here he's talking about more than just an attitude. I think what he's saying here is that we need to come as elders, pray over him, and anoint him with oil, verbally declaring the name of Christ that name which is above every name. We're told to be baptized in the name of the Lord. How do we do that? We say it. We declare it. In Luke chapter 10 and verse 17, the 70 said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Mark chapter 9 and verse 38, John says, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. How did they know? Because he was saying Jesus' name. In Acts 3.6, Peter said to a man born lame, in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. In Acts chapter 9 and verse 34, Peter said to a man who had been paralyzed for eight years, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. And I think that's what James is describing here. The elders anoint him with oil, declaring the name of the Lord Jesus, making it clear that we are his representatives and it is in his power that healing comes. And then the second provision, at the beginning of verse 15, it says, and the prayer offered in faith. Now, this shouldn't surprise us because faith is the condition for every prayer. Jesus said in Matthew 21, 22, everything you ask in prayer, believing, you shall receive. 
And so faith is the condition. What's interesting here is that the faith is on the part of the elders. They're the ones praying in faith. This individual has already expressed his faith by asking the elders to come. It reminds me of Mark chapter 2 where the four men brought their paralytic friend to Jesus and they couldn't get in the house because the crowd was too big. So they went up on the roof, tore a hole in the roof, and lowered him down in front of Jesus. And it says this in Mark 2.5, And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. You see, the faith was a team concept. And the same is true here in James chapter 5. The individual calls for the elders out of faith. And then they come and pray over him in faith. Now let me say something that should be pretty obvious. A prayer of faith can't be a vague, general, generic prayer. It's hard to attach faith to a vague prayer. Ever give God a multiple choice prayer? God, I don't know what you're going to do, but you may do this and you might do that and you might do that. A, B, A, B C, pick your, pick your letter. How do you attach faith to that? You've just laid out all the options. You haven't asked for anything. See, to be a prayer of faith, I have to ask for something specific. The prayer has to be directed. I have to be believing God for something. And what are the elders to ask God for in this case? Healing. And that's obvious from the third point, the promises in verse 15, because James says three things will result. Number one, the one who is sick will be restored. That word restored is used often in the gospel of someone who's made well. For instance, in Mark 5.23, James or Jairus says to Jesus, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her that she may get well. Same words. The promise in James chapter 5 is for bodily healing. And then there's a second part to this promise. In verse 15, it says, The Lord will raise him up, which is almost a parallel promise, but it emphasizes the source of the healing is the Lord. And it emphasizes the totality of the healing. He will raise him up. See, health is not something someone claims, but they don't have yet. Healing is somebody who's healed and they get up. They're up and going. They're strong and active. They are totally recovered. And then there's a third part to the promise. If he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. We said last week that all sickness is not related to personal sin, but it may be. And if it is, there's a spiritual promise here as well that this person will be restored spiritually. Which brings us to the principles. In verse 16, there are two principles. I want you to notice what they are. The first one is in the first part of verse 16. He says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Here's the general principle. Confession must precede a prayer for healing. 
You see, if I'm going around with undealt with sin in my life, then I can't expect God to heal me. I need to confess that sin spiritually first in order to get God's physical blessing. And who am I to confess it to? Well, James says, one another. Martin Luther, when he first saw this verse, said, one another? That's a funny name for a priest. I thought that was pretty funny. James broadens this principle in this verse from calling for the elders to dealing with one another. Now, be careful with this verse. I don't think this means you're to confess everything to everybody. That would make for a pretty ugly gathering. Pretty discouraging if we all stood up and aired our dirty laundry in front of each other and said, "Here's I had a rough week, let me tell you about it. There's a principle in Scripture, and that is when you have public sin, there's to be public confession. When you have private sin between you and your brother, it's to be private confession. And I think that principle holds for us as well. And in the city of Ephesus, in Acts 19, it says, Many of those who had believed kept coming, confessing, and disclosing their practices, and the practices were witchcraft. They were doing that publicly. When they came to know the Lord, they were confessing it publicly. But when it's a private sin, then we need to deal with it with the Lord and with the individual involved in that. And James says, when you confess that sin to one another, then you allow yourself to pray that prayer of healing. And then there's a second principle. And that's at the end of verse 16. It says, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Please underline this verse. Prayer can accomplish much. Do you believe that? Do you pray like that? I think sometimes we pray just hoping we'll get some kind of soothing effect on our spirit. Sometimes we pray just hoping we'll find some peace. This verse tells us that prayer actually affects change. Prayer actually moves the hand of God. Prayer can accomplish much. But notice, not just any prayer. There's two conditions here. Number one, James says it's to be a righteous man. Now when the New Testament talks about righteousness, it talks about two kinds. There's positional righteousness that Jesus puts into my account, that's the righteousness that's 100% perfect and gets me into heaven. But there's another kind of righteousness, and that's practical righteousness. That is to walk out my faith every day. Now, out of those two options, which one do you think James is talking about? Well, if you've been with us in the book of James, you know he's all about practical. So what he's saying is, if you're going to have an effective prayer life, You need to be walking out your faith daily so that when you get on your knees, your prayers accomplish much. And then there's a second condition, and that is that word effective. 
or your Bible may translate it fervent. Let me give you the Greek word. It's energio, from which we get our word energy. This is intense, determined, earnest, fervent prayer. Let me ask you something. Does that verb describe your prayer life? Or would a better verb be half-hearted, mind-wandering, cliched, memorized prayer? See, there's a certain quality of prayer that accomplishes much. The half-hearted prayer of an unrighteous man accomplishes little. The fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. Prayer can accomplish great things. Are you still skeptical? Need some proof? That's the final point. Verses 17 and 18. It says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again. And the sky poured rain and the earth produced its fruit. Elijah prayed and said, close up heaven. And it didn't rain for three and a half years. And then he prayed a different prayer. He said, let it rain. And it rained. Say, boy, I wish I was more like Elijah. Well, James thought you were going to say that. So what does he say in verse 17? He was a man with a nature like ours. Elijah was no different than you are. In fact, shortly after he got this great prayer answered, what did he do? He ran from Jezebel, went out in the wilderness. He was so depressed he wanted to die. He was just a man like you and me. But even though he was just like you and me, he accomplished great things through prayer. What was Elijah's secret? Look in verse 17. It says he prayed earnestly. There it is again. He prayed earnestly. He prayed fervently. I went back to 1 Kings 17 and 18 to the account of Elijah, and I picked out four things about his prayer that I think made it an earnest prayer. Number one, he prayed specifically. He asked for a drought. He asked for rain. He prayed specifically. Secondly, he prayed humbly. 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 42 says, Elijah crouched down on the earth and put his face between his knees. What's that? The posture of humility. He prayed specifically and he prayed humbly. Thirdly, he prayed persistently. 1 Kings 18.43 tells us he asked for rain seven times. Seven times. Some of us say, I've prayed four times. I guess God's not listening. He prayed seven times. He prayed persistently. Jesus said, keep asking, keep seeking, 
keep knocking. It's a continual thing if you're going to have effective prayer. So he prayed specifically. He prayed humbly. He prayed persistently. And then let me give you a fourth one. And I think this is the most important one. He prayed expectantly. 1 Kings 18.44 says that while he was praying, he kept sending his servant to look out over the sea and see if the rain was coming. He's praying seven times for rain, and he keeps sending his servant to say, tell me when it's coming, because I'm expecting it. And on that seventh occasion, his servant went and looked and came back and said, I see a little bitty cloud about the size of my fist. And Elijah said, get ready. It's going to storm. What does it mean to pray earnestly? It means to pray specifically, humbly, persistently, and expectantly. Is anyone here sick? The procedure call for the elders. They will come and pray over him and anoint him with oil. The provision, they're to do so in the name of the Lord and in faith. The promise, God will bring physical healing and if necessary, spiritual healing. The principles, confession must precede a prayer for healing. And the fervent prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And the proof, just look at Elijah and realize that we have the same God, same privilege, the same promises. We just need to understand the power of effective kneeling. Jim Elliott Jim Elliott was one of my heroes. Um, He was martyred as a young man, as a missionary in Ecuador. But he put this in his diary. God is on his throne. And we are on his footstool. And there is only a knee's distance between. God help us understand that the way to reach heaven is to kneel down.